Welcome to CE Conversations, a clinical podcast presented by Creative Educational Concepts designed to improve clinician performance and optimize patient outcomes. This session, Pulmonary Perspectives on Biomarker Testing in NSCLC, Multidisciplinary Management in an Era of Rapid Change, is accredited for two hours of ACCME credit and supported by an independent educational grant from AstraZeneca. To earn CE credit for this activity, please visit the link in our show notes to complete the post-test and activity evaluation at the conclusion of the podcast. And with that, we'll turn it over to our expert faculty. I'm going to share a a small anecdote. I was in a focus group the other day uh, from the chest uh, membership of only seven pulmonologists in uh, largely... uh, because they were largely in community settings and not in big practices and not in academic medical centers. And they shared their stories of uh, how difficult it is to manage the, the landscape of biomarker testing, everything from insurance issues to, um, to an inability to uh, keep up with the changing needs for biomarker testing to um, getting things scheduled. Um, and it was really eye-opening for me uh, coming from a multidisciplinary lung cancer clinic where I have you know, uh, 20 rooms and have two thoracic surgeons, two pulmonologists, two uh, uh, medical oncologists, a radiation oncologist, and an APP for screening within the place the size of this room that I can pull into my room anytime. And and a, and a very uh, developed uh, multidisciplinary tumor board. And so for me, um, it really, uh, really opened my eyes to, to what's going on. And, and listen, all I do is lung cancer. I see five to seven new lung cancers a week, um, everything from small nodules up to advanced cancer. Um, so I don't see chronic cough every day, thank God. Um, and I don't see asthma or tuberculosis. Uh, you know, I, I treat some other things, but mostly I see patients with uh, lumps, bumps, spots, and shadows. And, and so for me uh, to understand how difficult it is for community pulmonologists to, to get the right technology uh, really was uh, shocking and eye-opening for me. And, it, and it's, it, I think, left me with the challenge that I'd like to help um, uh, our community hospitals and community pulmonologists overcome. We have an incredible panel today, and I'd like to go ahead and introduce them. Um, hmm. Huh. Oh, well, maybe the, no, sorry, I can't introduce <laughs> you guys. Um, I'm just broke the screen. Matter. Can someone help me? <laughs> ah, that's me. You don't need to see me. Oh. Now we go. This is uh, uh, Dr. Ray Osarabayajan. He's the director of the Multidisciplinary Thoracic Oncology Program at the Baptist Cancer Center in Memphis, Tennessee. And I'll, I'll tell you that he's done incredible work across a large hospital network, including rural hospitals and underserved hospitals as improving cancer care. Um, he's a medical oncologist. And maybe it's this one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch. They have two of these up here. Hmm. Someone needs to either advance the slides or help me figure out what's going on with our technology. By the way, welcome to the hundred or so people who are apparently online right now. Okay, Lynette Scholes, she's Associate Professor of Pathology at the Harvard Medical School and Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston. And Lynette's an amazing pathologist who's really dedicated her research to uh, helping differentiate uh, lung cancer and understanding the molecular uh, mutations of lung cancer. 
Here in Meta uh, uh, is a professor of medicine and the program the director of the Interventional Pulmonary Fellowship Program uh, and the lung cancer lead at the University of Florida in Gainesville. And Jill Feldman is an amazing uh, lung cancer patient and advocate, and she chairs the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer Patient Ad Advocacy Committee and the co-founder of EGFR Resistors, and she's from Deerfield Park, Illinois. You will hear from all of these folks today, and there'll be lots of time for you all to interact with us. Here are the learning objectives. Um, we're gonna review uh, where the pulmonologist sits in the management of lung cancer. We're gonna evaluate uh, clinical and patient-driven factors that may help inform nodule evaluation and strategies for pulmonologists, making sure the right tissue in the right amount from the right place for the right patient. Um, that sounds like a tagline, right? We could use on, you know. Uh, a commercial. We're going to demonstrate the knowledge uh, of guideline recommendations uh, for EBUS uh, and emphasize the fundamentals of this procedure. We're going to describe the uh, evolving role of targeted therapy and immunotherapy in lung cancer and analyze some of the uh, FDA-approved therapeutics. We're going to explore um, the established utility of next-generation sequencing and discuss the potential for emerging next-generation biomarkers. And we're going to apply patient-centric evidence supported by this strategy to real-world cases at the end of the uh, at the end of the uh, talks. You can get a version of the e-syllabus uh, by using the QR code. I think they have those at your table, um, or by going on that website. Um, here are disclosures. Uh, I think Ray pretty much takes something from everybody. No, that's not true. <laughs> um, uh, but but you can see our disclosures there. We're we're good people. Um, we we're by and large paid by the states that we work for. Um, we're peasants. Um, this is supported by an independent edu educational grant from AstraZeneca, and I can tell you that we um, produced or had a lot to do with the slides. I don't think there's much in the way of any uh, anything that would uh, would take you uh, towards thinking that it's just educational material. And we are going to be using uh, Slido uh, for uh, as a mobile device, so you can uh, you can scan that QR code. That's the other QR code at your table. Um, there are question cards um, at your table. They're in very nice boxes, by the way. Um, and there's a virtual chat online, uh, a Zoom chat for those, and we will make sure we get to those questions. Okay, now for the fun. This is your pretest. And we're gonna, I'm just gonna tell you now, we're gonna give the same question post-test. That's so we can say we did a good job. Um, okay. All of the following statements about non-small cell lung cancer are true in 2022, except more than half the cases are metastatic at, at diagnosis. The incidence is declining and the five-year survival is improving. The incidence is increasing and the five-year survival is declining. The ongoing evolution and expansion of biomarker-directed therapeutics continues to advance outcomes. All right, you can join us at slido.com, answer that question. It's not a trick question, I'm not gonna lie. Okay, here's another question. According to the chess guidelines on EBIS technique, how many passes are recommended to obtain sufficient tissue for diagnosis? Now this is not 
Okay. This is not for molecular testing, just a diagnosis. How many passes? Greater than two, greater than three, greater than five, greater than seven. For you EBUS buffs out there. We have 33 responses. On, oh, 35. Come on, let's get that number up in between your forkful. I'm going to wait till it stops. I should have, I didn't see that on the last slide. All right. We're, oh, we got a late, we got a late comer. 38. Can we get 40? <laughs> Can someone put the same answer in twice? <laughs> That we're at 39. I'm going to stop 41. I, I think I'm going to go on for there. You, can, you guys can keep answering, but um, I don't know that we should wait all day for that. Okay. True or false? If a sufficient tissue sample is taken to establish the diagnosis of non-small cell lung cancer, it should also be in sufficient to conduct molecular analysis. Man, there's somebody like, look how quick there's there. See, true, false are easy. Like you just go with one of the other. 28. 29. Ray and Lynette are trying to cheat and talk to each other about what the answer should be. All right, we hit the magic 40. I say we, oh, there's that 41 again. Okay. A 67-year-old with a 45-pack year history of smoking presents for evaluation of a lung mass. Primary lesion is CT3, so a nearly six centimeter mass, N1, right hyaluronic lymph node. Uh, so it's T3, N1, M0, stage 3A. What is the most appropriate next step to evaluate this patient? Mediastinoscopy and resection, CT guided biopsy in the mass, bronchoscopy with EBUS, TBNA, something else. Right out of the gate, that something else doesn't feel right. Is that, you know, we never do something else. If you're a good test taker, something else is probably not, not a good idea. Not going to lie, by the end of the night, this whole panel is going to be blind from the lights that are right in our eyes. All right, we're at the magic 41. Let's go on. Okay. Um, was I turning this over to someone else? You still finish it up. Oh, I'll finish it up. All right. Lung cancer at a glance. Um, one in 17 Americans will be diagnosed with lung cancer in our lifetime. 236,000 will be diagnosed this year. Um, you know, it's, it, it, you he always hear this. It's more common than breast, colon, and prostate combined um, when, when it comes to deaths from uh, cancer. Uh, in, among females, lung cancer is a, a more common cause of death than every other female cancer. That's breast, that's uterine, that's ovarian, that's cervical combined. Um, 60 to 65% of all lung cancer diagnoses are among people who've never or formally smoked. And 10 to 15% of lung cancers are in people who uh, have never smoked at all. Every 2.2 minutes, someone is diagnosed with lung cancer. 
And what does it look like? Um, most, when we see patients with lung cancer, most are diagnosed at regional or distant disease. We're trying to change that paradigm with lung cancer screening, uh, but localized 19%, so that's generally you know, your coin lesion. Regional is spread to regional lymph nodes, uh, generally hyalur or mediastinum. And uh, distant is you know, the cancers met metastasized outside the, the, the chest. The four most common areas are brain, bone, liver, and adrenal gland. The five-year survivorship, it, it obviously goes down the more advanced disease that we have. So localized 61%, um, regional 33%, distant uh, and, seven, and 7%. And that's, that's, you know what's nice about these statistics? They're taken from SEER, which is the largest database of cancer patients in the country. It represents, I think now, 28% of all cancers in the United States. Um, and so it, it tells you what's really happening out in the community. It's not just uh, academic medical centers that have highly selected patients in their trials. Um, so the right tissue, the right place, and the right amount. Um, I'm going to turn the microphone over to uh, here in Meta uh, from the University of Florida, and he is going to take us through the sentinel role of the pulmonologist on the team. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, Dr. Silvestri. And Thank you for having me here. So my name is Hiran Mehta. I am one of the pulmonologists, one of the interventional pulmonologists from University of Florida. So that's my slide. And so what is the role of pulmonology in lung cancer? And I have a few slides that basically goes over what is the role of pulmonology in lung cancer. And before I start my talk, I just wanted to tell you what I was told by one of our oncologists where I am at. He's a very old school oncologist. He's about to retire. And he told me one day that, you know, Hiran, 20 years ago, we, when we did lung cancer tumor boards, pulmonologists, no, nobody even thought that pulmonologists are supposed to attend, attend lung cancer tumor boards. Pulmonary used to be like interventional radiology. They used to discuss a case at tumor board. If they need a biopsy, somebody would call pulmonary and say, hey, can you please set up for a biopsy? And the, the next few slides will just go on to tell you how much the role of pulmonologists has changed over the last couple of decades in lung cancer to a point that somebody who was basically in the on the sidelines to now, if you talk about football, then now trying starting to be more like a quarterback for the whole management of lung cancer. So what is the role of pulmonologist in lung cancer? So as everybody's practice is different, but most practices, when a patient's found to have a lung nodule or something that's suspicious for cancer, they initially end up with a pulmonologist. The pulmonologist sees the patients, they look at the scans, they discuss with the patient and they decide when to watch, when to biopsy, if you decide that it's time to biopsy, then what's the next best technique? And then any decision that you make is a shared decision-making with the patient. If you decide to biopsy, what is the best step to biopsy? Is it bronchoscopy, EBUS, one of the navigation platforms, peripheral nodule biopsy? And is it enough to just biopsy? Or you also need to biopsy the mediastinum, stage the mediastinum with EBUS. Does this patient need a PET scan? Does this patient need an MRI? And then once the workup is complete, including the diagnosis and the staging, then you refer them to thoracic surgery, medical oncology, radiation oncology, bring them at multidisciplinary tumor board. So from the time that somebody's told you may have lung cancer to the time till they see that treating specialist is the time when patients rely on pulmonologist or that's what our role is to take them through that process from point A to point B. So pulmonologist, as we talked about, is often the first point of referral for someone with suspected non-small cell or small cell lung cancer for that matter. Um, you evaluate the next steps, obtain the diagnosis, and then refer the treatment, refer to treatment. So essentially, like we talked about, 
we are starting to become more and more like gatekeepers for all these patients. They come to us and they go from point A to point B. And some of my patients, even to date, they tell our nurses or tell me that somebody tells me I have lung cancer. Why do I need to see pulmonologist? Because I think there is still a lot of this that I have cancer. Why do I need to see a lung specialist? I need to see a cancer doctor. But um, I think the role is changing. And I think patients are starting to understand what our role is out there as well. So again, the role of pulmonologist across the continuum of care in non-small cell lung cancer. So we talked about diagnosis. And diagnosis means not only that you are going to have a tissue diagnosis, but sometimes even do risk stratification, sometimes even have a joint decision-making with the patient. Are you going to watch it? Are you going to get another scan? Are you going to actually do a biopsy? Interpretation of clinical and radio radiographic findings, staging. So like we talked about, diagnosis itself is not enough. You have to stage them. If there's a pleural effusion, you do a thoracentesis, pleural biopsy, lymph node staging in the mediastinum and hilum. And Again, now, like I said, initially it was just diagnosis. Then we said diagnosis is not enough. What about staging? And now it seems like diagnosis and staging is not enough. What about getting enough material for treatment selection? So enough tissue sample. And so that takes us to treatment selection. So optimizing, optimizing the procedures, what procedure for diagnosis that you're going to do, what staging procedure you're going to do, which procedure you're going to choose so that you get adequate sample for next generation sequencing or molecular testing and ultimately which guides the treatment for the patient. And then we most of the times bring them at multidisciplinary tumor board and we decide what's the best management for this patient. And so it's really, a it's basically our role is central to all this. And there is a case in here that I just wanted to show you where, how it becomes important for pulmonologists and why um, if you talk to, if you read some of the articles, the two major reasons why pulmonologists get sued is one is missing a pulmonary embolism and second is missing a lung cancer. So that's how important our role is. And that's why it's very important. You look at everything, you have use your best judgment, lose, use the best literature out there and make the decision. So this is a patient who had a lung cancer screening scan in 2018. And it's a small um, CT scan image, so it's hard to appreciate, but there is something which is abnormal in the left lower lobe area. Unfortunately, because of insurance issues and things, the patient was lost to follow up. And a couple, uh, four years later, you see what has happened from that small cystic lesion in the left lower lobe to a large cavitary mass. Again, biopsy was done, and it turns out that this was adenocarcinoma with micropapillary features and the hyler, left hilar nodes were positive. Again, because of some reason, patient was lost for a couple of months, and then patient ended up in the ED with nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, and bilateral leg weakness, and turned out that patient had metastasis along the spine with cord compression, as you can see there, and patient had to undergo emergent laminectomy. So what, it, what, it, what the case really tends to show you is that it can be easy to miss a small nodule. And that's the reason why pulmonologists should be involved with their care from day one. Um, if, um, and again, it's hard to know what the details of this particular case are, but all of us have seen these kind of cases in our practice. So again, any decision that we make, we, we emphasize that in the last few slides, is that it has to be patient-centered and it has to be a combined decision. It has to be a shared decision with the patient and their doctors. Um, and, and again, in this case, maybe the patient might have chosen to wait and watch, we don't know. 
but that's okay as long as patients are aware of the risks that they're taking and the benefits of what the next steps would be. Um, anything that we do, more watch, watchful waiting, biopsies, more imaging, including more staging imaging, PET scans, CT scans, and any type of biopsy that we offer to the patient, it all has to be risks benefits discussion and a combined decision, a shared decision making. And again, um, there are a lot of studies which have shown that when the most anxiety provoking time in the diagnosis of cancer is when it's the time when somebody's told you may have cancer to the time they get their first treatment. And that's the time that patients usually spend with their pulmonologist in, in case of lung cancer. And that's why it's very important to have patient and family caregiver counseling. Um, and then again, like I said, sometimes patients are referred to us and so we can assist with the treatment plans. Sometimes we get calls from uh, oncology that we need more material for next generation sequencing. Sometimes we can do an EBUS, avoid medistinoscopy before lobectomy. For radiation oncologists, we can help them delineate if the cancer spread to the nodes or it's only in the nodule and that would change the treatment plan from a ablative radiation to a more uh, concurrent chemo radiation. And it's always important to obtain significant tissue as much as possible upfront rather than on the back end after the patients have had their treatment because it changes management. And we talked a lot about role of pulmonologist from the time somebody may have, somebody tells them that you may have cancer to the time they get their first treatment. But as the treatment advances and as lung cancer patients are living longer and as we have more treatment out there, our role doesn't stop there. Now the patients are coming a full circle. Basically, we have assisted them with diagnosis, staging, and gotten them to the right treating physician. And now, once they get the treatment, you will see down the line, they may come back to you. So somebody who had the thoracic surgery, the lobectomy, three years down the line, now has recurrence in the mediastinal nodes, and you may be called in to sample them. Medical oncology, somebody who you did all the right things, got enough tissue, did molecular diag diagnosis, you staged them, you got enough material for ancillary testing, and two years down the line, they have a relapse, and you may be called back to be involved in their care again. Same thing with radiation oncology. Patients who have had radiation get treatment. They've been cancer-free for a certain amount of time, and then they come back to you. And not only that, but complications of medication with immune checkpoint inhibitors, pneumonitis is common, and we com all of us have been called in to diagnose and treat them. Same with radiation pneumonitis. So all these patients, we are not done. Once we diagnose stage and get them to a treating physician, we may get involved back. So our role, the bottom line is, role of pulmonologist in diagnosis, treatment, management of lung cancer is expanding. And I'm going to stop at that. Thank you. And with this, I have Dr. Osok Jabdon, come on. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Let me see if I can do a little better than Dr. Silvestri. Ah, I was able to move the slides forward. It's incredible. <laughs> So my, my name is Ray Osaragabla, I'm a medical oncologist. Um, delighted to be here with you today. I think yesterday, some of you I, I, I have met in the audience were in the session we had yesterday where we talked about uh, um, advances in biomarker testing for lung cancer. This is going to be an expanded uh, discussion of that. Um, so, so we know where we have come from. Um, we, we, I talked yesterday of our winter of discontent where all we had was what I call today dumb chemotherapy, 
uh, everybody with lung cancer received the chemotherapy. They had whatever uh, outcomes we got with a lot of um, toxicity. Uh, so platinum doublet chemotherapy, that, those were the results that um, we, we, we had. Five-year survivorship uh, for patients with stage four lung cancer was uh, about 4%, you know, give or take, a little bit less. Um, and and it, it has since uh, been transformed. So we know we are now flipping the narrative about lung cancer from, well, life is hard and then you die, to a survivorship story. So I think what we need to do is understand why we can be optimistic, why we got to try harder, why it's a chess game. It's not checkers anymore. It's you got to make your first move, understanding that you, you're going to have to make a second maybe a third move. The outcomes are getting better. The cumulative survivorship is rising and rising apace um, in, in recent years. And there's an African proverb that says, uh, success has many fathers, failure is an orphan. So everybody wants to claim this. The, the biomarker testing people, the epidemiology people, the tobacco control folks, the screening and early detection folks, we're happy. It's a large tent. I think everybody belongs in it. So biomarker testing is a fast changing um, uh, landscape, uh, and which, is, which is great for us, great for our patients, but obviously comes with the challenge of keeping up. So here you see three different pie charts just so, somewhat, you know, random, these are not population-based studies, but just randomly showing you in 2012, William Powell wrote this paper when we were pretty excited about the discovery of the RET, you know, gene mutation. And he counted, you know, on this pizza, how many slices we now could account for. And almost half of the slice was still unknown. And then you fast forward uh, the lung cancer mutation consortium our colleague here, Dr. Scholl, was the first author in that paper, described the distribution of uh, gene mutations in, in their cohort. And you see that the no oncologic driver identified is now a smaller segment of the pizza. And then in 2021, this is my back of the envelope, uh, you know, calculation of, you know, how many FDA approved biomarker selected subsets of lung cancer did we have at that point in time counting for example the pdl1 high cohort for whom there is actually treatment you can do uh, with immune checkpoint inhibitor monotherapy skip the chemotherapy so obviously a decision point that you could have there now once again this is not a rigorous population-based study it's just counting the the, the prevalence of the various gene mutations and then looking at how that works out in 360 degrees. And you see that the unknown is now 11% ballpark, okay? So fast changing times, fast changing times. This is not an academic exercise. This is the evolution, the rapid cycle evolution of discovery of targetable abnormalities that you could use preferentially to treat people who we once treated as if they had a monolithic disease. You got your platinum doublet chemotherapy and we called it good. Fast changing times makes a difference. So 
The NCCN continues to gallop a pace, changing the guidelines to reflect the discovery and the FDA approvals of the various treatments. And if you ask the question, well, who cares? This is why we all care. If you receive appropriate treatment for this lung cancer, that's the outcome, the upper plug. And if you don't, that's the outcome, the lower plug. So it makes a huge difference. And the question is, how do we get into this brave new world of biomarker-driven treatment decision-making? How do we get into that chamber? The only portal is through biomarker testing. So no test, no personalized therapy. Gotta do the test, which is where you guys all come in. I'm sure Gerard doesn't expect me to talk about tissue acquisition. No, I don't. Are you back there? Um, there we go. Thank you, Ray. Um, you know, and uh, I look at those pie charts, and the, and the one thing I hear from some of my colleagues in pulmonary not interested as much in lung cancer is, oh, Gerard, I mean, like, look, some of those are only 1%. You only find them 1% of the time. And I, I turn that question back around. If you're the 1%, if you're the 1% who happens to get that ALK rearrangement where you can see 30, 40% five-year survivorship in a disease that had a 1% five-year survivorship, um, you know, just 10 or 15 years ago with uh, doublet chemotherapy. That's like the home run ball for you. That's like the home run ball. The other thing I would say about that chart is it's going to continue to shrink. The pipeline's incredible. It's a great time to be in this field. The pipeline is just stacked with medicines that are going to look at these pathways that are, um, you know, in, in the mutation of these, what is likely a hundred different types of lung cancer. And, and I'd add one last thing, which is, um, you know, the breast cancer physicians wouldn't think, wouldn't think of treating a patient with breast cancer without knowing their ERPR status, their HER2 new status, and their Oncotype VX status. They wouldn't think about it. It would be malpractice. And yet, many, many patients um, are not getting uh, biomarker-directed care for lung cancer. We need to change that paradigm. Um, so a major limitation in obtaining tissue for molecular testing occurs when minimally invasive techniques are used to obtain samples. The yield may be insufficient for molecular testing or even histologic testing. Therefore, we and the interventional radiology community really have to get sufficient tissue. And one other thing, one other conclusion I'm coming to uh, about this for pulmonologists is, look, you have enough to remember with for example, uh, what are the four or five different classes of medication to treat TOPD and this and that? I, I don't really care that you know the 15 or 12 FDA-approved drugs for, uh, for targeted drugs. What I care is that you get enough tissue that someone else can do that testing and the oncologist can pick the right uh, formula. And so uh, what I want my pulmonologists to know is um, it's important to get the tissue and it's important to get enough tissue. Um, when we look at the, um, uh, when we look at the non-invasive staging for lung cancer, we look at uh, uh, chest CT and for lymph nodes, that's one centimeter in short access. Sensitivity and specificity are 55 and 81 percent. Um, and then PET-CT is better, but it's not perfect. And so what I'll tell you is um, false positive and false negative 
pets in the mediastinum are relatively common. Um, and so I don't want uh, doctors to do clinically based treatment without tissue confirmation of a pet positive lymph node um, in a patient with suspected or known lung cancer. Um, you know, uh, who needs invasive staging? Any, any patient with a PET positive N2 or N3 lymph node, um, even no activities, but a really large central tumor on CT, um, that is uh, the, the false negative PET rate is almost 20% in that group. So you see micrometastatic spread to the mediastinum in those cases, very large tumors um, and clinical suspicion for N1 disease. We, N1 is hilum mostly. Um, we see that a lot on PET scans. So you'll see an enlarged hilum lymph node, particularly on the same uh, side as the lung mass. Um, you know, I, I honestly, uh, while I'm a pulmonologist and, and those are our staging guidelines from 2013, um, and I, I've often said uh, I'm not married to EBIS. I think it's an incredible um, technology and I've, I've seen it from the beginning. Um, but if you don't have good, uh, if you don't have good uh, resources to do a proper EBIS, I'm okay with a metastinoscopy. I'm okay with a VATS. I'm okay with a, a, a TTNA, transthoracic needle aspiration. Uh, um, what I'm not okay with is not getting tissue. That's what I'm not okay with in treating without having enough tissue. Um, you can see that this is the, uh, the, uh, the standard EBIS scope. You can use a 22, 21, or 19 gauge. Randomized trials have shown that um, there's no difference between the size of the uh, gauge of the tumor and the, uh, and the, uh, and the diagnostic uh, rate. And, and if you think about it, honestly, we're looking for DNA. We're looking for very small specimens. The size of the needle probably doesn't have much to do with that. The depth of penetration is two to five centimeters. So um, if you look at the ultrasound features, sometimes they can uh, be used to predict, um, but tissue samples still need to be uh, obtained. And so on ultrasound, the features I look for are um, hypoechoic lymph nodes are more likely to be malignant um, when we see those on ultrasound. Um, you know, when you see oblong lymph nodes, those are more likely to be benign. Isoechoic lymph nodes are more likely to be benign. Um, but, but still, uh, all bets are off. PET-positive lymph nodes are the ones we usually go after first. Anything above five millimeters or PET-positive, even if sometimes PET gets down to that resolution, it, it usually doesn't. But if it does, we go after those. 21 or 22-gauge needles are recommended. In the absence of rows for a diagnosis, you have to get three needle passes. Just the diagnosis, get up to three, and you're probably safe. Now, that's not inclusive of molecular testing, and we're recommending now many more for that. Um, for diagnosis and staging, uh, and additional samples beyond what's needed to obtain uh, molecular analysis. I don't know if we're going to show this slide, but for sure, um, interventional pulmonologists are getting now, uh, when, we, when we surveyed an, a group of IP people, our lab did a, a survey of 480 uh, pulmonologists, and IP people are getting seven passes. And, you know, look, if the patient's quiet and you can get an, an extra number of passes, just go ahead and do it. Um, in patients with uh, EBUS, uh, we, we uh, asked for diagnostic uh, 21 versus 22, really no difference in any of those uh, passes. Um, and inadequate uh, is, is more likely to happen with a 21 gauge needle. Parenthetically, um, when we got the 21 gauge needle, which I pushed Olympus to make thinking bigger must be better, um, we were getting better results in our lab and we keep that data from the 22 needle. So I use the 22 gauge needle. 
Um, so this is uh, from our lab, Adam Fox is the first author, um, where we looked at the viability in the number of needle passes um, when, conduct uh, when conducting an EBIS. So the first thing that you see on the left is um, it, it really is unbelievable that a number of pulmonologists, about half, only see between one and four cases a, a month of, of lung cancer. Um, when you look at uh, uh, that among academic uh, sites, you see that there's a, they see a lot uh, a lot more uh, of uh, uh, one to four is, is still at 50%. When you look at academic interventional pulmonologists, those, are, those folks are seeing a large 10 to 14 or greater than 15 cases most of the time per month. Even community interventionalists are seeing more uh, than the community generalists. Community generalists, 64% are, uh, are seeing between one and four a month. What's really amazing to me is that slide that you see on the right. Now, I think um, there's probably good reason for some of the results on that slide, but there's no good reason to do an EBIS and take zero to two passes. And that's happening almost 15% of the time. That's crazy. That's like doing a sham procedure. Um, what we do see, though, is three to four passes is the most common. And I actually think that comes out of the guidelines, but that's the guidelines for diagnosis, not for molecular staging. And then five to six passes are now being done by a quarter of our pulmonologists and greater than seven passes by uh, 7%. And I can tell you that those last two blue uh, pieces of pie are mostly the interventional, doc, uh, interventional docs and academic pulmonologists. And so one of the things we see is that uh, the, you know, we see that there are differences in specialty, right? So uh, there's a statistical difference between the number of EBISs you do per month. People who do a lot of EBIS are, uh, are uh, doing uh, more than seven a month, They're, they have a much better awareness of what's going on. Interventional pulmonologists, again, statistically significant. Um, academics, again, statistically significant. Um, and, and where there's an institutional policy about whether to order um, uh, whether to order biomarker testing, we see a big difference. So if there's an institutional policy that says, hey man, this is how much tissue you should be getting, you are more likely to get that much tissue as opposed to no institutional policy. So here's a kind of graphical depiction of where we go after EBIS. Um, you know, from my perspective, the most common place we uh, get in, in lung cancer for lower lobe disease is the, is the subcarinal space, which is level seven. For upper lobe tumors, and remember two thirds of lung cancer in the upper lobe, as just think smoke rises, um, are in the upper lobe. And those lymph node stations, by and large, are 2R, 4R, or 2L and 4L, sort of the AP window, if you will. Um, you know, an ebiscope really doesn't get down very far into the esophagus. So levels eight and nine are rare. Um, in terms of that. So we're mostly going after um, mediastinal lymph nodes and hyalur lymph nodes. Um, and then, so uh, this is really pretty good uh, at picking this up for uh, EBUS, 88% uh, sensitivity uh, versus MEAD, 81% sensitivity, specificity is 100%, accuracy is very high, and the positive uh, predictive value very high. Negative predictive value is still better than MEAD. And this is why in the 2013 iteration of the guidelines, uh, which I authored um, for, for staging lung cancer, 
It was the first time in 2003, we didn't even mention EBUS. In 2007, we talked about it, but mediastinoscopy was a gold standard for staging the mediastinum. 2013, EBUS took over as the gold standard for staging the mediastinum. If the mediastinum is negative by EBUS, we and we're still worried, we ask our uh, surgeons to do a med right at the time of surgery. It's an incredibly low risk procedure. Um, I, I've done thousands of these. I'll tell you, uh, I've, I get more afraid of, and I, and I hope my pulmonary colleagues will agree with this. I'm more afraid of a blind transbronchial needle biopsy than I am of a 45 or 50 minute EBIS case. The bad cases of bleeding have come in my, in my hands from doing uh, a transbronchial biopsy and nothing makes me more fearful than watching that little, little bronchus fill up with blood, um, you know, and then yelling at the fellow and telling him it was his fault um, or hers. Um, does rose matter? And so this is a tough one. Um, and so we have rose at our institution, and I actually think it does matter. I'm going to show you the data both ways, but um, I, I think um, if you look at uh, the uh, rose, no rose difference, in, in, there really isn't a difference in terms of the, uh, the, the diagnostic yield. What I will tell you is if you don't have rows, you should do more passes because you know I've been there and you know yelling at my pathologist, look, you can see the needle going in, it's in there. And I'm like, Gerard, you got nothing. Um, sorry, Lynette, I don't yell at them a lot. Actually, they're usually fellows. I do yell at the fellows when the attending comes, I'm all nice and sweet. Um, but in any event, um, you know, what I think Rose helps me with is knowing whether you have necrotic tumor or knowing whether you have this enlarged lymph node with, with not a lot of cells on it. And we need cells, we need DNA to look at uh, cytology. And so I'll, if I have something that's relatively acellular, but we know it's cancer, they tell me it's cancer, I'll go in and do more biopsies. Or if it's necrotic, I'll go to the edge of the lymph node, not necessarily to the center of the lymph node and try to get more and more tissue. So rose helps me. Um, and if I get a, a specimen that's just loaded, I can do less and, you know, and then they can work with that. So I think that's where rose is helpful. It directs how many biopsies, where the biopsy is, and it makes me feel comfortable that I have enough. I've never worked without it, so I don't know um, you know, what that feels like. And I, I, I would think it doesn't feel great. I don't know. Um, but I, I think it matters for me and I use it. But if you don't have it, all I would suggest you do is go to those seven passes rather than two or three passes and, and, and feel comfortable with that. Um, you know, and, and here you can see that there is, um, uh, the only difference here was that, uh, Patients with non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer, there was a trend towards uh, rows uh, being able to do complete genotyping. Otherwise, it's non-significant in terms of adequacy or sensitivity. Um, three aspirations is standard. Fourth, did not increase yield. I think we've been over that already. But again, that's for diagnosis, not molecular analysis. Um, you know, molecular characterization. So Again, these are a little bit tough to get at. Um, some, you can see in this stuff that um, uh, with EBIS, you can uh, pass this as needed. This didn't designate. 95%, you were able to do next generation sequence testing. 
Um, in one study, it was also 95%. It was 82% with three to five passes. Um, and so again, I think more passes, the better. Um, and it was 80% for EGFR and ALK. One of the problems with the older studies is we didn't have to test for the full panel. Now we're asked, being asked to test for a more extensive panel. And so I think with a more extensive panel, you're gonna need more passes. I'm telling you that I think the very least is five passes anymore. This is my, uh, uh, my anecdotal uh, doing tons of EBUS. Um, uh, and, and then we, we absolutely, if the patient's quiet on the table, do seven passes. Um, so this was a, a chest guidelines for EBUS, Moment Wahidi at Duke, uh, with or without rows, it's a grade one C, without rows, a minimal uh, of three passes for diagnosis. Um, okay, current standards. I'm gonna turn this over to Lynette Scholl. Well, th thanks so much. Um, I think this is the first time I've ever spoken to a room of pulmonologists. So if I'm really nervous, that's why. Um, and I, I have to I have to speculate on the pie charts as well, that that um, narrowing unknown group. You know, I think a subset of those are the patients who actually don't have sufficient mm -hmm. material, but go to NGS anyway, and we get a result that's essentially uninformative. So sort of speaks to the whole theme here, the better quality of tissue we can provide, I think the smaller we can shrink that unknown piece of those, uh, those biomarker pies. Okay, so um, I was kind of hoping that Dr. Ray would have to address these things because these are just sort of overwhelming tables uh, showing the, the, current, uh, the current environment of targeted therapy approvals for uh, individual genomic biomarkers and has already been, um, you know, emphasized tonight. It's, it's really an extraordinary landscape um, we're, we're, I think, like, you know, kids in the, in the candy store right now in terms of the, the number of potential therapeutic options. Um, I, I would say that a lot of the options that we see here are, are still very much focused on individuals uh, with light or never smoking history. So a lot of what we're talking about with regard to the targeted therapies represent patients with typically lung adenocarcinomas or non-small cell carcinomas not otherwise specified. Um, uh, usually with light to never smoking histories, but that's certainly not an, that's certainly not at the exclusion of patients who have a more significant smoking history. We see these targetable alterations in that context as well, uh, and we have to look we have to be looking for them. Uh, we're we're start, starting to move increasingly now. If you look at the right side of this uh, of this table, things like KRSG12C inhibitors um, have really revolutionized the way we think about biomarker testing in our smoking patients in particular, because that's the, that's the group in which we're finding these G12C mutations, and we now have targeted therapy for, for, for those patients. Um, and this is the same in the emerging, uh, many of the emerging targets uh, as well. Um, and, and just to really continue on the theme that Dr. Silvestri uh, talked about in, in his portion, with regard to uh, kind of understanding this, um, this biomarker testing space amongst pulmonologists, this is taken from the, the same study that he showed a couple of, of graphics from earlier, but essentially what these graphics are showing you is, is what is the um, level of understanding amongst the uh, pulmonologist community that, that he sampled 
uh, in terms of uh, recognition of these biomarkers as predicting response to particular targeted therapies. Um, and so the survey asked if, if, uh, if a patient has an EGFR mutation, is there an available targeted therapy for this patient to take? Um, and, and as you can see that the majority of the responders for things like EGFR and ALK uh, responded in the affirmative and of course were, were correct. Um, you can see that this is broken down across the, the setting in which these practitioners worked, whether it was an academic setting or a community setting. And, and you start to see as you move kind of across these, these bar graphs into those biomarkers with which people are probably a little bit less familiar, things like BRAF uh, mutations or RET fusions, that the recognition that there are actually drugs out there for these particular alterations uh, just wasn't there at the time that the survey was run. Now, the thing that I really love about this survey is that you put in a trick question, and that was whether or not there was um, drugs available for HER2 um, alterations in lung cancer. And at the time that this study was run, those drugs didn't actually exist, but you can see that about 50% of respondents said that those drugs did in fact exist as approved, uh, as approved therapies. So um, it's, it's obviously a, a complicated space. And um, you know, not only are there a lot of biomarkers, but there's a lot of variability in terms of what, bio, what, in terms of what biomarker guidelines are actually saying are, are required for testing. And um, this, reflects, this particular slide reflects really a global perspective on biomarker testing. And you, it, the font is a bit small, but across the top, we've got reflection of guidelines from Europe and the ESMO guidelines. Um, a variety of different US-based guidelines and then the Pan-Asian guidelines. And you can see there's sort of that top five biomarkers, EGFR, ALK, ROS1, and BRAF, and PDL1, which are recognized essentially globally as, as necessary biomarkers. Um, and then again, as you kind of go down the list, there's much less consensus about the, the need to obtain biomarker testing for those targets. And I, I, would, I would say that you know, one of the, the major barriers, I think, globally is simply access to the uh, associated medication. Some of the targeted therapies are not approved in some nations um, around the world. And some of, these, um, some of these therapies are just simply not available um, in, in countries represented uh, for, for some of these guidelines. Um, so that's certainly an important factor. And so you'll see very, certainly variable uptake of, of this type of biomarker testing in, in different parts of the world. The other factor that leads to variation in these guidelines is simply the timing of when these guidelines were published. So I would point out that the CAP IESLC AMP guidelines, which are really focused on the diagnosticians uh, in terms of the molecular pathologists and um, uh, uh, molecular diagnosticians and surgical pathologists, um, those were published in 2018. And, and my how the field has changed since 2018. And in fact, when those guidelines were published, the BRAF inhibitor therapies had not been approved yet by the FDA. So the guidelines really did not emphasize the requirement for BRAF testing in our non-small cell lung cancer patients. And um, then ASCO came out with an with uh, endorsement of those uh, molecular testing guidelines uh, a few months later and, uh, and, and pushed BRAF into really an essential, um, essential uh, a biomarker for testing. Okay, and so you know, I, I think that we have a lot of we have a lot of guidelines to help support the um, the testing strategies that we can consider. The the one that I think we rely on most heavily, I'm sure, both in the clinic as well as in uh, the, the diagnostic laboratory, is from the NCCN, um, and that's largely based on the fact that it's kept quite up to date. Um, so, in contrast to a lot of the sy systematic reviews based guidelines like the CAP AMP ISLC guidelines that take three or four years just to 
uh, put together. Um, these NCCN guidelines are obviously updated uh, regularly and reflect the latest FDA recommendations or FDA approvals. Um, so that's obviously very helpful. And then from the standpoint of, of actually justifying our existence to uh, insurance companies and justifying our, our, our testing practice, we rely very heavily on what the NCCN uh, says is either uh, category one recommended or category 2a recommended um, a gene for biomarker testing and essentially the distinction there category one would be high level of evidence supporting wolfer testing as well as essentially uniform consensus among the nccn panel that that testing is required a 2a which is everything that doesn't have category one listed next to it is something for which there's lower level of evidence but still uniform agreement on the panel that we need to be testing that um, so you can see that these category one alterations, EGFR, ALK, uh, and PDL1 are, are, are bolded. Those are the things we know the most about, but there's a, again, a long list of things that we should be incorporating into our molecular profiling strategy, ideally as part of a broad molecular profiling approach. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about the testing approaches um, in a moment, but you know, this broad molecular profiling approach is gonna, it's really gonna facilitate us getting much more information than we could get from individual single gene tests. One other thing I would want to point out from here is that we, the, the NCCN parses out the non-squamous tumors and the squamous tumors among, in, in that non-small cell lung cancer overarching category. Um, the squamous histology uh, uh, tumors, is, it's an interesting point of discussion, and I'd love to hear perspectives from other people on the panel. Um, my, my own perspective, and this is from work uh, I've done uh, analyzing the types of alterations we see in these tumors, is that for patients who are light or never smokers, and, and this is well recognized, the chances of finding a targetable alteration in something that's called a squamous cell carcinoma is very high. So I would estimate 50% or greater likelihood you're going to find something that's imminently targetable um, in a patient who's a never smoker with a, never or light smoker with a squamous histology lung cancer. When you start looking at your patients who have a heavy smoking history and squamous histology, the chances of finding a targetable driver are much lower. The majority of the time when we do find a driver, it's going to be in, in the KRAS gene usually, and we're talking maybe 5%, maybe 10% of the time are we going to find that KRAS mutation. So it's, it's a lower yield population, and I think as has been discussed already, this is maybe a conversation with the patient in terms of um, the the the, the, the reasonability of doing molecular testing, particularly if there's a concern around um, uh, cost uh, financial toxicity from, from doing the testing. So of course, how are we doing this broad molecular profiling? We're employing next generation sequencing largely. And this of course is uh, otherwise known as massively parallel sequencing. And we're taking uh, individual DNA or RNA molecules um, and essentially pushing them through a very high throughput assay. And by high throughput, we're talking both in terms of the amount of the genome we can analyze at one time for an individual specimen, as well as the number of patient samples we can, we can analyze at a single time. Depending on the assay, uh, you have a large panel assay with a large sequencer, you could analyze 50 patient samples at once. Uh, so it makes it much more feasible for us to kind of do this at scale um, in, in testing laboratories. Um, and, and again, this is, this is the strategy that's recommended. Um, and there's, there's different flavors of next-gen testing. And, and this is a, this is a, a, a table that essentially, essentially sort of hammers home the fact that there's a lot of different types of alterations we need to be looking for in these genes of interest. 
And when you, when you take something like next-gen sequencing, you can capture essentially all of them. Now you can't capture PDL one status because that's a protein readout, but everything else that's DNA-based or potentially RNA-based, you can pick up with, in particular, a hybrid capture-based strategy, next-gen sequencing assay. That's like the kind of gold standard. That's when you talk about whole exome sequencing, large comprehensive gene uh, profiling panels. These are hybrid capture assays. The downside of hybrid capture next-gen testing is that it's usually a week just in the lab to do the testing. It's a very um, labor-intensive and kind of chemistry-intensive process. If you want to kind of shrink that, you, you kind of shrink the, the number of targets on your panel, you shrink the turnaround time, you go for something like an amplicon sequencing panel. And if you want to shrink that even further, you go for one of these new integrated strategies for next-gen sequencing testing, where maybe you're just looking at, say, a panel of two or three genes, or maybe you're looking at a panel of maybe 50 genes, um, and you can literally take the sample, like a, a piece of tissue, you stick it in the machine, it does the nucleic acid extraction, and it spits a report out the next day with the, um, with the, uh, with the biomarker alteration. So we're, we're seeing a really you know, very impressive big explosion in the, in the various um, approaches we can use for, for sequencing that's making it more and more accessible um, in, in, in smaller settings. Okay, so despite all the enthusiasm and excitement around next-gen sequencing and all the promise it brings, uh, recent data uh, still suggests that it's really underutilized in our non-small cell lung cancer patients. Um, so in this particular pie chart, you can see that only about uh, slightly more than a third of patients actually had next-gen uh, sequencing performed to characterize their lung cancers. It doesn't mean they didn't have any characterization, but it was probably limited. And just, just shy of half of patients are receiving testing for those sort of top five um, gene alterations that we talked about a few slides ago. Um, so we're still kind of not getting where we need to get with um, providing broad molecular testing for our, our lung cancer patients. Um, so where, where should we be right now? How should we be thinking about strategizing the, uh, around uh, the needs for either biomarker-driven, molecular biomarker-driven uh, therapy or immunotherapy? Um, so, so this is how we can think about this. You have a patient who has a non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer. They absolutely need genetic testing of that, uh, of that tumor. If you're finding a targetable mutation, uh, there are all of these first-line options available. And Dr. Ray can talk about this more, but we, we've seen from the clinical trials that when the patients are getting these therapies in the first line, they're doing better than when they get the therapies in the second line setting or beyond. So being able to get these drugs to the patients in the first line is really important. And turning around our molecular testing in, in time so that they can is obviously really critical. If all of these mutations are, if all of these genes lack potential mutations, um, then we're looking at PDL1. I mean, the reality in the reality, we're ordering PDL1 at the same time as biomarker testing. We're delivering a PDL1 result faster than biomarker testing because this is like a one or two day test as opposed to a several week test. This is the, one of the tensions, I think, in practice. Um, and, but you can see again, there's a huge number of options today in the US for patients who have PDL1 uh, expression. Um, depending on the, the extent of that expression. And I think I am now uh, passing it along. Great job. So Gerard was trying to make uh, a medical oncologist of Dr. Shaw, and she stood up to him. I, I gotta, I, like I gotta tell you that was pretty impressive. <laughs> so I, I'm gonna cover the why we've been kind of haranguing you guys about getting tissue, 
getting tissue, biomarker testing. But to what purpose? I showed you sort of an aggregate, you know, kind of bottom line story slide, you know, NCCN directed therapy, not NCCN directed therapy. Well, let's, let's dig into this a little bit. So this all started uh, from an unfortunate experience, of course, when the oral tyrosine kinase inhibitor, Jafitinib, was uh, first tested in the United States in the first phase two trial, there were all these anecdotal reports. We all had single couple cases where cancer here, there, I remember a patient who we thought had miliary tuberculosis. She was a Vietnamese immigrant got to be miliary TB, turned out to be lung cancer, put her on the clinical trial, Jafitinib. First scan we did, the radiologist calls me and says, look, Ray, we screwed up. I was like, what? He says, well, I think we did a picture and mislabeled it. Uh, could you send that patient back? We need to do it again. Did the CAT scan, same picture. Basically, the miliary looking stuff that was adenocarcinoma had melted away within a matter of six weeks, okay? So clearly something was happening. And on the basis of the results of that trial, the FDA conditionally approved the drug and said, thou shalt do a phase three randomized control trial. And when they did that trial, it flopped. And so the FDA withdrew the approval, vanished from the kingdom, off they went. And then they had to try to figure out what exactly was going on? Ultimately, answer came. But between that point and then, there was this understanding that these hyper-responsiveness happens. It's for real. Everybody has a picture they can show you, okay? And then the patterns began to emerge. It was youngish women, light or never smokers. A lot of them were Asians. And so this trial was done, the IPASS trial, in which adenocarcinoma patients were enriched for that demographic pattern. It was an Asian trial. Most of the patients were light or never, uh, people who had never smoked or who had smoked uh, very little, all had adenocarcinoma as they were younger. And as the trial was going on, came new knowledge about activating mutations of EGFR. Now, these patients had already been enrolled. There was the possibility of going back. It was a randomized control trial. Go back, retest the tissue. Some of these people had EGFR mutations. Some did not. They were reasonably balanced on the two arms. And this was what you got. So not shown here, slide, the, the figure A of this was the bottom line uh, intent to treat result. And what you saw was chemotherapy started out looking better. So this was a randomized trial of the pill, jefitinib versus a platinum doublet chemotherapy. Started out the doublet chemotherapy was looking better and then the curves crossed. And then further down, the pill was better. And when you dug in and asked for those who were tested and found to have an EGFR mutation, how did survival compare? That's what we're looking at here. The pill, jefitinib, was significantly better than the platinum doublet therapy. Slide C of this same figure shows the exact opposite. So the people who got the pill, not chemotherapy, 
but who did not have the gene mutation did worse. That's why we're haranguing you about giving us sufficient tissue to test. That was the first piece of evidence that we had that testing uh, mattered. So you fast forward and we now got to a world in which we understood there is activating mutations of EGFR. You give the pill, that miliary TB that turns out to be adenocarcinoma melts away within six weeks. So the natural question was, well, yeah, you did the IPASS trial. That was kind of cool. Yeah, well, a lot of those people were sort of not quite, you know, appropriate. So prove it. Fast forward, a third generation oral tyrosine kinase inhibitor, osimertinib, which works not only for those activating mutations of EGFR, but also when a resistance mutation, uh, the most common being the T790M mutation, um, which caused failure of the first and second generations of the tyrosine kinase inhibitors. This drug was designed to overcome it as well as be effective for the others. This was the trial that was then done, the, the FLORA trial. Everybody had a gene mutation, activating mutation, or the T790M resistance mutation, randomized once again to this third generation pill or the then available first generation pill. So now we're not talking dumb chemotherapy versus pill anymore. We're way past that by this point. We're saying, two different flavors of the pill. Third generation that also works against the resistance mutation and the then standard. These are the survival plots. So one of the things that we used to feel as oncologists was we were regarded as incurable optimists, right? We used to have these survival plots that you sort of needed a microscope to see the difference between one thing and the other. So in this era of personalized therapy, biomarker-driven treatments, you're seeing these wider and wider gaps between success and failure, such as this. So, you know, we have seen that th th there is significant improvement in disease-free survivorship. You could drive a truck between these two survival plots if you chose to do that. You don't need a microscope to see it anymore. We continue to question about overall survivorship, but that's another world in which we are because not everybody dies anymore just like that so people are living longer at, at the time of progression they're going on to the next treatment so even on this clinical trials people are crossing over and the delayed treatment is giving some benefit not as much as you would do if you knew it up front but clearly we're now in a world in lung cancer where we see these striking big differences in disease-free survival and then the overall survival is like, well, what's going on? It's not quite as striking. That's because a lot of people get the chance later on to go on to the successful treatment. So oral targeted therapies for oncogene addicted lung cancers, huge home run, grand slam success. You know, the, I'll give you the, the J-Alex trial, the Alex trial that used um, a, a, a pill for, um, Alt-mutated lung cancers, stage four lung cancers, a lot of these patients with brain metastasis at the time of presentation. You know, Gerard talked about the aggregate five-year survival of stage four lung cancer was one to three percent, right? Those bad old days. The Alex trial, the five-year survival, 62 percent. 
why wouldn't you look for it? Why wouldn't you look for it, right? So that's why we care. What about immunotherapy? That's a whole new ball of wax that we get to play with. So immunotherapy uh, has come into its main immune checkpoint inhibitors uh, uh, here for us now. There are many different types of them, different brands. I'm not gonna bore you with that, but where did this all come from? It started as we always start with medical oncology. We start out with people who essentially have run out of options. So fail this, fail that, fail this. You go on a you know, phase one trial, you go on a phase two trial, lots of promise. So at the time, um, we would give first line chemo, platinum doublet chemotherapy, oftentimes for the non-squamous ones, we would add a VEGF inhibitor, bevacizumab, so triplet therapy. And then at the time of progression, it became kind of slim pickings and docetaxel was sort of the standard default second line treatment that we used. Gave you, you know, the old school, you know, kind of responses that we as incurable optimists, we would be excited and pounding the table about, but the rest of you would look at us and say, really, this is it, right? Yeah. So we, we compare when these new drugs come against docetaxel. So this is nivolumab versus docetaxel. This is a world in which, you know, patient has already been treated, stuff has gone on wrong. And you see once again, quite a bit of daylight between survival plus. And then subsequently other drugs, you know, uh, came on board. Um, you know, when we talk about chemotherapy, immunotherapy, um, people still think, well, that chemotherapy is kind of tough, but we now recognize that, you know, the people who really respond to immunotherapies um, are people who have a biomarker, um, a, a protein biomarker that, that you can measure, um, PDL1. The tumor proportion score, when it's greater than 50%, you get real good responses. So naturally, um, the, the, the question um, arises, can you um, use these drugs, um, you know, by themselves without um, chemotherapy? And we have done those trials, you know, uh, that's not what's being shown here, but you fast forward, we can actually in first line, identify patients who we can treat with immunotherapy by itself without even bothering with the chemotherapy to begin with. That's how far along uh, we have come. And so we start out with the worst of the worst. You know, you run out of options. We're trying to salvage therapy. Then we come to stage four. You know, we ask the question, the drug works when all else has failed. How well will it work in the first line? Check, works. And then we start looking for other people. Okay, what about people who have potentially curable cancer Okay, not stage four, but something for which um, surgery may not be possible, but we can do treatment that saves, rescues quite a few of them. We'll come to that. And then there's, well, we know surgery is what we ought to do for these non-small cell lung cancer patients, but we know surgery fails a lot. What if we gave treatment to make the surgeon's job easier to reduce the bulk of disease at the surgeon. So new adjuvant therapy, this is the new kid on the block now. So patients with locally advanced non-small cell lung cancer, 
randomized to receive three cycles of chemotherapy with an, Im an immune checkpoint inhibitor, nivolumab, versus just chemotherapy alone, what I call dumb chemotherapy alone. And then everybody goes on to surgery. This is the Checkmate 816 trial. Primary endpoint event-free survival and pathologic complete response rate, which is a good predictor of what's going to happen. Here's the um, event-free survival stats. Once again, don't need a microscope to see the difference, right? Pathologic complete response. By the time you had your surgery, you got nine weeks delay because you got three cycles of chemoimmunotherapy, chemotherapy with or without immunotherapy, and then you went on to surgery. If you added the drug nivolumab to the doublet chemotherapy, the blue is the proportion of patients, 24%, in whom there was no more evidence of cancer in the resection specimen. And then the pink is what you get with the dumb chemotherapy. So we're excited. Um, you know, after surgery, we've now brought it in. Okay, you can give all these drugs to people before surgery. What about if they went straight to surgery? Is there any role for any of these fancy new treatments? Okay, so the EMPOWER 010 trial asked the question, after primary resection in patients with non-small cell lung cancer, um, if you gave them everybody chemotherapy and then some people uh, an immune checkpoint inhibitor, atezolizumab, versus not, what happens? This is what happens in the intention to treat population, but even more interestingly, in the biomarker population, one PDL1, 1% or greater, you see a bigger difference. So these drugs are working their way, both targeted therapies and immunotherapy, they're working their way across the spectrum of lung cancer. What about people whose cancer can be cured, but not by surgery, not candidates for surgery? We used to give them chemotherapy and radiation therapy, and it was anywhere from 15 to 25% who would live out to five years. So, you know, our, we tried many different things, playing with different doses of radiation, playing with different types of chemotherapy, and, you know, it was just uh, frustrating. So the PACIFIC trial was done several years ago that took patients with stage three non-small cell lung cancer that were deemed unresectable. There's no surgeon on this panel, so we won't have to come to blues about what does that mean, unresectable. But unresectable, just take it. Two to one randomization, you got your chemotherapy and radiation therapy. And then at the point where it was deemed that you had stable disease or better, you got randomized in a two to one way. Um, some people getting a year of this other immune checkpoint inhibitor, durvalumab, others getting placebo. Once again, daylight between survival plots, huge daylight between survival plots. So the, uh, what's that color? Yellow was what we had done for decades with small ball, you know, small ball progression forward with changing radiation equipment, doses, target, blah, blah, blah. Suddenly just one drug. This is what you, it's amazing when the science catches up with the cancer, what's 
you can do with that. This is enduring Pacific five-year progression-free survival update, overall survival updates. It is real. So, you know, we are excited and uh, we wanna beg you to get excited about all of this as we are, because we can't do any of this without your help. Sure. Thank you. Um, we're gonna go. Well, thank you. I think that was all for uh, Lynette, not for anybody else. And Jill has been awfully quiet, but we're gonna get Jill involved soon. These are the cases. And so what I'd like to do is present the first case, a 64 year old male, 40 pack year history of smoking, presents for evaluation of a lung mass. You can see that large mass in the right upper lobe. Um, and you also see the PET scan lights up in the, uh, looks like 10R space. Um, and he has a history of hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and he's currently on a few meds and has no other medical history. And the review of systems is negative. The mass is 56 millimeters or close to six centimeters. Um, and he has a T3 lesion, the N1 or right hyaline lymph node um, is at least positive on PET. Um, and it's clinically, and I, I, I point out clinical stage 3A. Um, and, and again, um, these are patients who we would normally um, ask the question, do we go uh, to a CT guy to biopsy the mass? Do we go to a mediastinoscopy and immediate resection? Or do we do bronchoscopy with EBUS? So I'd ask, I, I'm gonna get my panelists involved here. Um, here in, uh, as the pulmonologist, what would you do? I mean, so you know that this talk, we've talked a lot about bronchoscopy, EBUS, TBNA. So rather than just giving the answer, I would like to say, so why not just do CT guided biopsy for the mass? Because CT guided biopsy, we know is very high sensitivity more than 90%, it will get you an answer. You will get an answer, but you're not gonna be able to stage it. Mediastinoscopy and resection. Again, remember the guidelines that Dr. Silvestri talked about. We want to biopsy, but at the same time, we want to stage. And anyone who has a clinical N1, you want to stage N2. And so the best option that what I would do is a bronchoscopy with ebus TBNA. Great. And so um, this would be the right answer. Uh, thank God he saw the questions first. <laughs> um, so, you know, the, the idea is uh, this is a, a pet activity in the mediastinum, uh, but there's a large mass on CT and it's central tumor. Um, and uh, so for all those reasons, uh, we would like to do uh, an EBUS TBNA. And then again, this patient, uh, if you assume that just the hyalur lymph node is positive, um, you know, this is the biggest change in the last three or four years from the Checkmate 816 trial is that um, these patients would normally get, if they're resectable, neoadjuvant chemotherapy um, followed by surgery um, and be restaged at the time of surgery with the mediastinoscopy if they had EBUS or the other way around, if it were the other way around. Um, and, and now in these cases, we're giving these patients uh, nivolumab up front. I would say though, that you really wanna look for an EGFR or ALK mutation in these patients before you commit to the surgery. And the reason for that is if they're EGFR positive, we would recommend surgery followed by osimertinib, that third generation uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitor. So this is an incredible change and we're seeing our surgeons just jumping up and down at tumor board um, to, to have us uh, do a proper diagnosis and staging and get that information on pdl one 
and on EGFR ALK. Now we run a 50 gene panel anyway, but, but for those patients, we at least want that data to know about treatment. Our second case is, the, and we're gonna open this up at some point to questions. So if you remember these cases and you have questions, let us know. Is this 59 year old female with metastatic EGFR mutated uh, non-small cell lung cancer on a TKI? At, at, at in this day and age, that would be osimertinib. It's that third generation TKI gets great penetration both to the tumor and to, to brain mets for that matter. Surveillance imaging shows a new FDG, AVID, mediastinal, and hyalur adenopathy. Um, what's the most appropriate next step for this patient? Check the original biopsy sample for PDL1 status. Check the original biopsy sample for another mutation. Perform EBIS for the new adenopathy. Start second line chemotherapy based on radiographic evidence of progression. I'm going to throw this out to both Lynette and Ray. Yeah, um, so I, I would, uh, you know, oncologists, the joke, another oncologist joke is, of course, oncologists, uh, because they don't have to do anything, all they ask for is more tissue. <laughs> I'm an oncologist, so of course I want more tissue. I want to know what is this new thing, so I would ask for the EBUS um, of the new adenopathy. And Lynette? Yeah, I think that's probably the only, the only uh, right answer here. Um, the original biopsy is not going to provide us the information we need in this relapse settings. What we're inferring is that she's she's relapsing um, on on uh, a uh, EGFR TKI, and as you indicated, likely osimertinib. And the spectrum of resistance mechanisms that we see in that content context are actually quite astonishing. And actually, many of them are potentially um, potentially could lead us to adding, say, another targeted inhibitor to um, to her current uh, her current her drug. So um, we we definitely need to get more tissue and uh, and query the the molecular genetics of of her current state of disease. Can I ask Jill to weigh in here on? Um, I, I hear that some patients uh, might be resistant to going back to another biopsy. What's your experience been as a patient advocate and a patient yourself when the doctor says, hey, things might be progressing. Um, we'd like you to go back for, to see the pulmonologist for a biopsy. What do you hear from the community at large um, about their either willingness or resistance to have that biopsy? Yeah, uh, some people are very hesitant to have another biopsy. Maybe they had a bad experience at first. And really, it's about educating the patient on why the biopsy is important and talking about um, you know, most of the people like in the oncogene groups and obviously have a oncogene driven lung cancer. And so they know that the therapy they're on and why they've done so well is because of having a biopsy. So, you know, we always kind of say, you know, is if it's necessary or if, you know, you would like to have it. So, when we talk it through with patients, we say, if this can change your treatment, um, this might be able to add, as Dr. Scholl said, another uh, targeted therapy. And I think patients are more and more um, accepting to it now. But I do think, you know, it's, as a patient, um, I listening to all of this is very exciting, what's happening 
and you come to conferences like this and numbers and curves get the spotlight and they tell a very important story of hazard ratios and survival. Um, but that's only the statistical part of the story. The other part are the patients, whether they're newly diagnosed or they um, have progression. Fear takes over. So I think, you know, you can expect emotion and that is an opportunity to really educate the patient and do what you can because I think somebody mentioned earlier the worst part is the waiting part so I know from experience and from a lot of people um a lot of times it's pulmonologists who are the ones talking to the patients whether it's before a biopsy or whether it's right after the biopsy especially if they're you don't have rows really talking that patient um, and their family and the counseling is really important. And Jill, you've shared always so much of your story. Just very briefly, what year are you diagnosed? What did you, uh, what rearrangement do you have? And, and just tell the audience, you know, and you can look at her. I, if, you, if she had walked in here as one of the participants, no, no one would have known, uh, I think, that Jill's had cancer. Just, just very briefly, if you could just share that with us, please. Yeah, so I was first diagnosed in 2009. I was 39 years old. My kids were 6, 8, 10, and 12. Uh, now, I, had, I have family history of lung cancer, so I did periodic scans. Um, and so when something was first found on a scan, we watched it for three and a half years, and then I was diagnosed. At the time, in 2009, they were only testing for KRAS and EGFR, and I was stage one EGFR positive. Um, and because of my family history and my kids being six, eight, 10, and 12, I um, off-label went on a targeted therapy as adjuvant therapy. And let's just say it's the only time in the past 13 years I have not had cancer. So I've used SBRT a handful of times and uh, three and a half years ago when I had further progression um, and actually then I had a, another biopsy, um, I've been on targeted therapy uh, stable ever since. And so, you know, I, I have, and so I had an instant three and a half years ago where I needed to have a biopsy again. And because I had had uh, major surgery, it was a, the, the main, uh, I guess, tumor, it was like two, a little over two centimeters. So it was small uh, that they needed to get to. It was very difficult, I guess, to get there. And so um, really the pulmonologist uh, talked me through different options. And I actually, and, and another pulmonologist at a different institution who was, you know, playing his, uh, on the robotic, the, the monarch Oris or whatever. Um, and he was able to get that. And it saved me a lot of, a lot of time. A lot, I mean, you know, hopefully, uh, pneumothorax I didn't have. I was able to fly within a couple of weeks where I was going to my son's graduation from college. 
So it really, you know, these conversations are really, really important. And um, yeah. We always show the success stories, but uh, how about a round of applause for somebody who's out since 2009? So um, again, the answer was, uh, was sort of there for us. Um, I think this is the third, maybe the last case, 67-year-old female, 3C, uh, which is uh, uh, stage 3B, uh, 3C lung cancer, given concurrent chemo uh, and an immune checkpoint inhibitor, progressive cough and shortness of breath, uh, developed fevers and mucus production, um, had been sick with contacts uh, with a grandchild, CT identified new infiltrates and ground glass opacities bilaterally. What would you do in this case? Empiric treatment with steroids and antibiotics, refer to ID, refer to thoracic surgery for a biopsy, refer to pulmonology, or a multidisciplinary discussion. Uh, I'm going to turn this one over to Hiran. You know, when, when you don't know the answer, you say, wow, it's a really good question. So this is a good one. Um, but I mean, we are a group of pulmonologists here. I think what we are kind of getting to is, is this patient developing checkpoint inhibitor induced pneumonitis? But it could be infection, it could be anything. So I think the next best step, step would be to refer to a pulmonologist. To yeah, I agree. I, I think multidisciplinary discussion would also be possible. The one thing I would say to you about the immune checkpoint inhibitors is we always thought about like what happens when a patient presents acutely with a changing radiograph in the face of lung cancer. In what I would call the dumb chemotherapy days, we would really put infection high on our list because these people were uh, immunocompromised from chemotherapy, but the checkpoint inhibitors don't do that. And so this case has got a little, you know, twist and turn to it, but by and large, if you're seeing ground glass opacities within 30 to 60 days of the start of immune checkpoint inhibitors, low-grade fever and a cough, that's going to be ICI pneumonitis un unless uh, otherwise indicated. I don't think you need to biopsy that. We are not any longer unless we're really sus suspicious about progression. And of course, we rule out thromboembolic disease in these patients. We are, in general, putting those patients on a, a, on a, on a steroid. Um, but in this case, uh, we want either one of those to take place, either a discussion at a, a multidisciplinary tumor board or a pulmonologist to help sort that out. Um, and again, uh, the, what we would do is look at whether we thought this was pneumonitis from drugs, from ICI, or from radiation. We'd, we would treat infection if we thought that were the case. Um, um, and then, you know, if you're really caught and you're having a, a patient who's becoming hypoxic and things aren't going well, then we would consider bronchoscopy for rule out infection and look for progression. Um, and then, you know, uh, we would treat concurrent lung disease and, and those pulmonary complications. I can tell you that I think it's an important role for the pulmonologist to manage the complications of treatment of lung cancer. And I know that my oncology colleagues appreciate our ability to, to step up and do that at a moment's notice. So this is the summary. Pulmonologists play an integral role. You know, I think we've made a good case, pr pretty good case, an excellent case for efficient sampling um, with a reasonable turnaround time to get that tissue to the pathologist so they can get an answer to the oncologist to pick the appropriate therapy. And that therapy is rapidly expanding from um, the, uh, from the phase, uh, stage 1B all the way through to metastatic and recurrent disease. Um, and it's been an explosion and very quickly come upon us. And so um, we need to kind of keep up with what's going on there. But if you don't take anything away from this other than we want you to get as much tissue as you can 
six, seven passes, send it to your pathologist. And the last piece of this is communication, communication, communication. You know, go to the bowels of your hospital. It seems like that's where the pathologists always hide. Bring a cup of coffee to the poor fellow or woman that's down there. Say hello. I actually invited my pathologist up to the Bronx suite and said, I want you to sit through a few of these uh, bronchoscopies with me, see what it is we do and tell me what you need. Let's work together. Let's have a communication plan. Let's talk to our oncologist so that we can come up with a cohesive plan for how we're going to manage this specimen, how we're not going to waste specimens. So for example, if I have a repeat um, a repeat bronchoscopy, I'm not asking them to go back and do staining to see whether it's adeno or squamous and wasting material there. I'm saying I want this all for molecular analysis. So having a, a communication plan that works for you will decrease your turnaround time, get the patient that treatment as quickly as they can. And I think Jill pointed out the need for that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then, you know, that multidisciplinary approach, I think, is, is, uh, is uh, um, you know, here. I think I've hit the top line takeaways, not going to cover insurance status unless folks have questions, but I will tell you that most of the, uh, most of the uh, uh, insurance companies are now covering next-gen sequencing, um, and you just sometimes have to fight a little bit, but you usually get it done, and they have patient assistance programs that can help. Um, and here we go for the post-test. All right. All the statements about non-small cell lung cancer are true in 22, except... More than half the cases are metastatic at diagnosis. Incidence is declining and survival is improving. Incidence is increasing and survival is declining. The ongoing evolution and expansion of biomarker-directed therapeutics continues to advance. Okay. Okay. We got us a horse race here. Yeah. We only have 12 people. Did everyone leave online? All right. True or false, if a sufficient tissue sample is taken to establish non-small cell lung cancer, it should also be sufficient to conduct molecular analysis. Ha <laughs> there we go. One. Oh, it's only one. You're one. See yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <The> drop. <laughs> I'm trying to help you guys as much as I can. It's late. We're tired. Did the bar close? <laughs> the bar left. The bartender left? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't drink before this. All right. Very good. A 67-year-old male, 45-pack year history of smoking, had a lung mass, primary T3, N1, uh, M0, 3A. What is the most appropriate next step? Only two people are going to respond to that? <laughs> oh, yeah, go. Go, my pulmonology buddies. Okay. Yeah, there were two. There, I know. That's 100%. We're taking that. We're taking we're 100%. We're claiming it. All right. All right. Now we're open. Um, I think they have a microphone that can be walked around uh, for our online colleagues. Can, um, uh, can I ask our, our uh, AV person, if anyone has questions, raise your hand or 
come to the mic. We got some questions for Dr. Schreiber. We actually have two with oh. hands that I can start okay. addressing and, um, and we'll pass some of these questions off to the other panelists as well. So the first question that, um, that I got was how long, and I think this is a question also for um, uh, my medical oncology colleague, how long do you wait for comprehensive genomic profiling when you have a tumor proportion score of greater than 1%? Um, uh, you know, I, I, I will reiterate the fact that there is this challenge, this tension in testing where comprehensive genomic profiling, because of the nature of the testing um, and the fact that it requires, for the, typically requires tissue, um, can take up to two weeks to turn around. And that's really the acceptable um, time window that clinicians and molecular pathologists have kind of agreed on. Two weeks is, is, that, is, that, is that turnaround time. Uh, and you're going to have the PDL one back in a couple of days. So, um, what, what do you do in the interim, and 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 um, is it worth waiting for that comprehensive genomic profiling? I, I don't, I, you know, I don't want to speak for me, my medical oncology colleagues, but um, again, emphasizing the importance of the improved benefits of of giving targeted therapies in the first line. Um, I think maybe taking the clinical context into account is important, and and at a minimum, knowing the EGFR, uh, an ALK, and maybe the ROS1 status, because those are things that are often, maybe BRAF, those are often things that are quite easy to get quickly within a lab, potentially a single gene test. So why don't you take it from there in terms of what you require? Right? Sure, yeah. I, I think there are two big reasons uh, why we would want, if we can, to get the molecular testing back. One is the fact that the, the most common ones, well, most of the ones that we have would be first-line treatments to which patients are likely to respond. So the, 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 the difference between taking a pill once a day at home and seeing your oncologist every oh, three months or so versus coming in every three weeks to get IV treatment with all the side effects and all of that, that's a huge difference. Mm -hmm. And I think Jill can tell us, but most patients, when you explain that difference to them, even with the anxiety of you got a lung cancer, it's advanced, and we got to start treatment, now wait. I think when you explain to them, most of them are willing to mm -hmm. wait. Now, of course, there are situations in which you clearly can't wait. Patient is deteriorating right in front of you. Patient is symptomatic and so on. We the second reason why it's important to know is, yeah, you could say I'm going to start the, you ask about the checkpoint inhibitor, the PDL one greater than 1%. Well, if we, we have evidence from multiple different types of oral tyrosine kinase inhibitor therapy that when you give immune checkpoint inhibitor treatment first, and then later on, you go on to the targeted therapy, you have more pneumonitis, including dangerous pneumonitis. So you have the efficacy reason, and then you have the toxicity reason to want to know as early as you can. Now, if our back was up against the wall and we didn't have time to get the result of the genomic test back, and we felt the need to press on with treatment, in most cases, we will just use the dumb chemotherapy without, without the immune checkpoint inhibitor until we knew for a fact that there was not a target to switch to. Because the issue of pneumonitis is mm -hmm. with the prior exposure to the immune checkpoint inhibitor. So for these reasons, where we can, 
we would rather wait to know. Mm -hmm. And where we can't, and we have to maybe make a little bit of a Hobson's choice, we will just go ahead with the chemotherapy and then add whatever, switch to whatever ultimate treatment the biomarker test tells us we should do. And I think another reason to wait, unless somebody's symptomatic and you have to start chemotherapy, is if somebody has even a round of chemotherapy and then you know starts their targeted therapy, that will exclude them from future trials. So we find that happens often. So it really is um, really important if the patient isn't very symptomatic to you know talk to them about it or you know, send them to um, different, there are different patient groups, there are different patient advocates who provide support, there are large lung cancer organizations that have lifeline matches, and they can help, because during those two weeks, if a patient can talk to somebody who's, you know, been through it with the lived experience, it's much there's much less anxiety than talking to your doctor or your nurse. Okay, Lynette, you have a second question? Yeah, there's sort of a corollary question, and, and that is where does liquid biopsy or cell-free DNA testing come into the algorithm? And, and, and associated with that is can the pulmonologist um, order that testing? I'll just say two things about it. Firstly, um, you know, I think as a field, we're moving towards adding more and more liquid biopsy into our practice. There's, there's recommendations out there that we, we actually do this in parallel with tissue testing when possible. Um, I, so I think we're sort of moving in that direction. It's an incredibly powerful tool. It's great when it's informative. When you find a, a biomarker in the blood, it's really, that's, that's wonderful. But if it's negative, it's, it's essentially an uninformative test. So that's where actually having access to both the liquid and the tissue is, is critical. And secondly, it's, it's probably of less um, utility in patients who have a lower stage disease, more limited disease. We, we recognize that patients who have, say, chest-only disease tend not to shed very much circulating tumor DNA um, into the blood and therefore it can be very difficult to, uh, to characterize the, the tumor genome from that type of sample. And maybe I should pass it over to you for- They're clearly very patient-centered, um, very patient-friendly, especially in this age where we find reasons to check multiple times during the course of a patient's trajectory. The other um, aspect of it is that there are several emerging reasons why we want to repeat genomic testing. Uh, sometimes it's, it's to identify resistance. Um, sometimes in some of our clinical trials is to actually measure the cadence of response, you know, to decide whether to pull a plug on a treatment or go on to something else. Um, the, 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 then, the, of course, there's the emerging ctDNA as a predictor of future relapses or future recurrences. Um, so fast moving space, the rules are changing dynamically. So it started out as an uh, afterthought thing. Uh, it was approved to be done when um, tissue-based testing either failed or was not feasible. But very quickly, we began to see, especially where some of the turnaround time was faster. Uh, so it actually moved to a, do the blood test first. And then if you don't get an answer, because as she just said, if you get an answer, you can hang your hat on it. If you don't get an answer, then do. 
Now, increasingly, we're actually recognizing that the two things are somewhat complementary. They're not 100% overlapping. So you can find things on, 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 on blood-based testing that you actually can't find in the tumor because there's tumor heterogeneity. Where you stuck your needle to get your biopsy may not represent the cells that shed in the, in the blood. So where, where, where we seem to be headed is actually maybe increasingly to be doing both tests. I'm going, to t I'm going to add just one other uh, clinical scenario. So if the only site of recurrence is bone, uh, bone is difficult to get uh, enough data. You have to decalcify in the bone. And so molecular analysis on bone is difficult. So we use it in that setting. Uh, we get liquid. And also for recurrence in patients who were pretty sick and, and it's difficult for them to undergo a bronchoscopy, we, we move very quickly to a liquid biopsy. Those are two clinical scenarios I like to use liquid in addition to what the rest of the panel said. Jared, I, I think also the question was, can a pulmonologist order this? My, my, my answer to that would be depending on your institutional policy. This is something, all of this that we're talking about, please, if you hear nothing else, what I would say is go home and work it out mm -hmm. at your institutional practice level. Come up with a plan that everybody can follow. And if that includes you doing the test, by all means, the oncologist will thank you for it because he wants the answer by the time he sees the patient for the first time. He doesn't want to have to see the patient first and then have the time spring forward until the answer comes back. And then the last few questions, the one uh, directed at uh, myself and I guess Hiran as well is, do we put all of our EBIS specimens from a single lymph node into separate test tubes? And the answer to that is no, but I do use separate tubes, separate you know, uh, collection uh, plates for uh, separate lymph nodes from a staging perspective. That's what we do at our place. Um, even if there's some blood in one of the passes, they'll spin that down and, and won't worry about it. Um, the next question I'm going to answer as well, uh, which is, do we stay involved in the treatment even if it's small cell? And my answer to that is yes, for two reasons. One is that we stage it, right? Limited or extensive, you can stage it using the other classification. Um, but in, more importantly, small cell patients can get pretty sick in a hurry. Uh, lots of thromboembolic disease, um, lots of drug-related toxicity. Um, and, and so they depend on us to help them through those times, um, particularly even palliation. And also um, if you have an interventional pulmonologist uh, stenting in that in regard. Um, and this, uh, for Ray, uh, what has been your experience with uh, AEs? Are they frequently dose-limited in uh, non-small cell lung cancer? Adverse events? Yes. I immune checkpoint inhibitors? Or it, it, this, it looks like IRAEs. Immune-related. And maybe I should. Okay, so immune-related uh, toxicities. Well, I, I think we are getting uh, more, as we have become more vigilant, um, we have become much better at recognizing early and preventing the full-blown catastrophes that we started out years ago with. I, I think, um, the, the, again, immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy is something that has taught us to go back and remember internal medicine. Because basically, you can have complication side effects in any organ of the body. Uh, endocrinopathies, all kinds of weird stuff that as an oncologist, I didn't have to deal with before, you know, um, Addisonian crisis, you know, all kinds of stuff, you know, uh, secondary diabetes, you know, colitis. Yeah, colitis, you know, any itis, yeah, just, you know, any organ of the body could just add the itis behind it. So, but, but we've become much more vigilant 
And one of the things that we're also trying to do is encourage our partners, you know, endocrinologists, pulmonologists, gastroenterologists, everybody to become aware that we may need their help with these patients and asking for that help early has allowed us to actually see that, that the big catastrophes that we used to have at the beginning are no longer what we see. Well, with that, I'm going to take the uh, chair's prerogative and, and close this session. First, I want to thank this amazing uh, talented... Wait, can I say one thing? Yes, you may. I just want to say one thing. So, um, as I said earlier, my family, you know, I have a family history of lung cancer. Uh, my dad died three months after he was diagnosed. And this is talking 20 plus years ago. But my dad died three months after he was diagnosed, and my mom died six months after she was diagnosed. It is because of advancements in research and treatment that I have lived for 13 years. And I think my family history illustrates why it is so important um, to do biomarker testing. So that's Thank you for that, Jill. Um, uh, and with that, um, I'm going to uh, end this uh, panel discussion. I really want to thank people for coming. I'd like to thank CEC Concepts, who, by the way, put this program together at a moment's notice. And, and, and I hope you think we pulled it off OK. And uh, have safe travels and a good evening. And thank you very much. Thank you for attending this edition of CE Conversations. We hope it has been impactful for your clinical practice and most importantly, for the patients you serve. Please proceed to the link in the show notes to complete the post-test and activity evaluation to claim your CE credit.